Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. That is Psalm 27, verse 10. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I'm Sandra Flack, so thankful to be with you today. Can you believe we are halfway through August? I know some of you listening probably have kiddos who are already back in school or If you homeschool, you're back at it. Here in upstate New York, where I live, we don't actually start school until right after Labor Day, which that's right around the corner. Um, Amazes me how time flies. And I have a couple of episodes coming up uh, starting next week on the topic of school, whether you homeschool or your kids go to public school or private school. I am confident that the upcoming episodes will be a helpful resource to you. But today we have a guest, totally different topic we will be getting to. Um, But yeah, we're flying through August and that means September, right around the corner. And September is National FASD Awareness Month. And if you listen to this podcast regularly, you know that I talk about FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, a lot on this show. This podcast is not 100% FASD. There are some amazing podcasts out there that I do listen to that are. Um, But because we talk about all of the things really that um, are in this space of adoption and foster care that we as parents need to know or that we walk uh, through, um, you know, on this journey, FASD is one of those. I talk about it a lot. I have two teenage sons diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. Uh, and, and I talk about it a lot because the prevalence rate is staggering, but the diagnosis rate is like next to nothing. Um, basically, what I'm saying is it's over 80% of children in the foster care system, in out-of-home placements, in kinship placements, adoptive placements, have been prenatally exposed to alcohol. Only most of them are not diagnosed or they are misdiagnosed. I often say they have a whole alphabet soup of diagnoses, but they don't have the FASD diagnosis. But all of the things that they do have are probably coming under the umbrella of an FASD. So I am a staunch advocate of every foster and adoptive and kinship caregiver being aware, um, not only aware of FASD, understand it, be um, trained in it, understand the neurobehavioral model and so on. So um, we're going to, we talk about that a lot. All of my September episodes will be FASD focused. 
And I am a um, excited to say that we are a um, Justice for Orphans, our nonprofit. JFO is a proud platinum sponsor of Run FASD, the annual event raising awareness about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, working to make this invisible disability visible. So join participants across the country by creating a team in your community. Visit runfasd.org to learn more. Um, Today, like I said, we have another resilient guest with us. So hang in there for that. We're going to be um, listening to her extraordinary story in just a few seconds. But first, check out these announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And I am so grateful for our Hope for the FASD Journey virtual support community. I hope you'll check it out. Um, And I also have some online workshops coming up. I'm offering a one-hour intro to FASD. It's the same same workshop as our Lunch and Learn, but I'm offering it on an evening, Thursday evening. Um, Actually, it's August 10th. So by the time you all hear this podcast, that will have passed. So um, we'll, we'll be offering another one probably in September. But I have a uh, three-hour, it, it goes deeper. It's like it's like the intro. It's still an intro, but it goes a little bit deeper. I use the FACETS neurobehavioral model. That is Saturday morning, August 19th from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern time. And if you really would like to go deep into FASD and the neurobehavioral model, I have a deep dive workshop coming up. It's a six, three, six sessions. They're three hours each. So it's 18 hours of brain-based content. So six, six Wednesday nights in a row for three hours each beginning October 11th at 7 p.m. Eastern. And then it'll be every Wednesday night for six Wednesday nights after that. Um, and we go, it, it's the full on facets neurobehavioral model training. So if you're interested in that, um, you can check that out on our website. We offer certificates of completion for all of our workshops. Uh, If you are a social worker licensed in New York State, we offer CEUs. To register for any of these online workshops that are on the schedule or to learn about other workshops that that, um, you can sign up for, uh, or if you're interested in having me come because I I do travel and I do teach in person, uh, if you're interested in having me come and and, and do one for your group, um, you can visit our website justicefororphansny.org and you can click on the registration tab at the top of the page or click on training and you'll see a FASD tab and you can go there and learn about all of it. And there is a link to the website in the show notes for this episode. So please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. We don't want you to miss a single uh, episode. We know that this 
this podcast is a, is a valuable resource for adoptive, foster, and kinship caregivers. So I hope you'll subscribe and let your friends know um, so that they can follow too. And um, before we get to our guest today, I, I do want to mention that Again, we're going to be discussing some very sensitive topics. So if you have little ones around you or if they're in earshot or even if you yourself might be triggered, you should pause this episode and listen at a later time uh, when when you're alone, when, when there's not little ones listening. So let's get to our guest. Barbara Lane integrates her life experiences of being a foster child, sister, wife, mother, grandmother, child advocate, educator, and ministerial counselor into her writing. In addition to her 25 years in private practice as a ministerial counselor, Barbara's educational background in human development, social sciences, and family psychology with a focus on child abuse inspires her to share her expertise on interrelated issues such as family, family separation, foster care, attachment, child maltreatment, and resilience. We're going to talk about it all. Please welcome Barbara Lane. Hi, Barb. Hi there, Sandra. How are you? I am doing great. I'm so excited to get to have this conversation with you today. I am too. I've been looking so forward to this and I just, you know, I'm so excited about all you're doing, the topic, what we can do perhaps together during this conversation today to help others who might listen. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I got to read your book, uh, Broken Water, and it's the story of you are one of 11 sisters, biological sisters, um, abandoned, abused, who reunite. It's an incredible story after like over 40 years of being separated. Um, would you... I, I mean, the book is incredible. It was a page turner for sure. Um, so of course, I don't want you to like give the whole book away right now, but the synopsis, kind of give us that you know synopsis of your story. Sure. I always tell people at this point in time, I literally am an open book <laughs> because <laughs> I just shared everything uh, about myself and, and quite a lot that my sisters were willing to share too. It is a, stor a story that um, addresses, I think, many, many elements of uh, childhood development, in addition to trauma in childhood. Um, as you said, I was born the ninth of 11 girls. We were poor. We lived in the projects of St. Louis. Um, my mother and father, my biological parents were struggling. And I, as the story goes, which I have to preface, it depends on which sister you listen to, because memories, you know, are, are uh, often um distorted i would say or inaccurate but to the best of my ability i pulled all these stories together and this is the way i understand things had happened um they did my parents weren't getting along my mother made my father leave she started dating started having many dates with many men and then eventually one she took off with she, it was December in St. Louis in the projects in the city. She turned off the heat. She sold all the furniture and she left us younger girls there uh, with no food, no supervision. Mm -hmm. She took the baby with her that was seven months at the time. And I have my own theory on why she did that, but just abandoned the rest of us. Now there were a couple older sisters that were already married and out of the home. So they didn't know 
what was going on. Um, but we were there, from what I understand, three days, with cold and nothing. And a neighbor finally figured out well, something's wrong and, and got a hold of my eldest sister, which called Catholic Charities, and they came and got us and um, put us in the orphanage. Now, you would think, I was three, you would think that would be pretty traumatizing for me, but it wasn't uh, because I had my older sisters with me and wherever we were, as long as I had them, that was fine with me because they loved me so much. But my older sisters were terribly traumatized by this, you can imagine. So my trauma, my biggest trauma was being separated from them when we were placed in foster care. And I think that's something really to speak to is the importance of, I'm kind of getting off topic, but it's so important, the importance of sibling visits, you know, keeping in contact with your brothers and your sisters is incredibly important. So we didn't have that happen once we were separated. Some of the sisters kind of knew where each other were, um, but still were scattered through different foster care placements. My sister Kay and I, she's 18 months older than me, we were put in one home together and there we stayed till we grew up. And it was a home of a mafia grunt. So I often say, think the movie The Godfather, and you have a little bit of an idea of what we were growing up with. Um, our foster father was terribly abusive, violent. Many people have the same story, you know, of being young and intimidated and threatened so you don't speak up to anyone. Wouldn't dare because he would say, I'll kill your sister. Well, you just don't, right? And there's so many children in that position. And that's why they hide and remain quiet. They just don't have the opportunity to speak up. So we stayed there. And, and I'd like to, to say that I survived that. And I believe one of the big reasons I survived has to do with attachment and bonding theory that I had really attached to my older sisters. And when that happens, you see a glimpse of yourself in their eyes, right? Your true self, the divinity in you, the God-given soul. They reflected that back to me in my young age. And I hung on to that. I hung on to what they saw in me. That doesn't mean that I didn't forget it at times and lose all hope. Absolutely. But then there was still, I, I got back to that. You know, if you see the divinity in someone, and they know you see it, that's really hard to forget. So I didn't mm -hmm. really forget that. And I think it really helped me um, survive. After my foster mother died, for some reason, she had such power over me. It's all understandable. But after she died, I was just even more committed to try to find my sisters and searched for them so many ways. Um, again, the importance of keeping siblings together. There's a piece in your heart that's just hollow and, and it's missing that link. So I hired a detective. I mean, I got on, um, uh, lost family registries, things like that. There wasn't the internet back then, no DNA testing. Um, so I did everything that was possible to find them with no luck, but we had a miracle occur. And I can only call it a miracle because uh, 43 years after we had been separated, my family and I were planning for a trip to the beach, which we did every August. 
And I was in the kitchen gathering things I would take with me. And um, my kids had said to me, oh, Mom, you know, everywhere we go, you think you're going to meet a long-lost sister. And it was true. In the grocery store, vacation, anywhere, if somebody looked a little bit like me, I would wonder. So I had them on my mind when I had this amazing premonition. And it was like God just shook me and said, <laughs> it sounds so simple now, if you want to find your sisters, why didn't you just ask? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I mean, I knew in that moment that they were they were going to find me after all my years of searching in so many ways. I knew from that experience, God was telling me, just ask, you know, it's all you have to do. And I knew they were going to find me. I also knew in three days. Because three is very significant, right? The resurrection, the, it, so many beautiful spiritual um, elements of the number three. And Sandra, on the third day, we were at the beach. I got up, went out on the beach to sit for a minute. And my husband called me in this boardwalk little old condo we stayed in. And I knew. And he said, sit down. When I went in, he said, sit down. I said, the sisters found me, didn't they? And he said, how did you know? So that set me on a course where everything in the process from there on was truly divinely led. We got together. We were like kids again. There was so much love shared between us. That bond had never left. That attachment was still there for all of us. And so we spent several years just healing those broken pieces in our hearts and um, I, I was to find out after we were together for a while that all 11 of us not one escaped the experience of sexual abuse in our childhood and I mm. thought we're going to be a force to be reckoned with you watch <laughs> you know because all 11 of us so and this coming together after we were together for a while they asked if I would write a book um, I thought it would start out as just a journal because they were struggling with sharing their stories with each other for a variety of reasons. They didn't want the older ones to know for fear they'd feel guilty, that they couldn't take care of the younger ones. Lots of reasons. Then you learn to be quiet, right? So our coming together was an opportunity for us now to open up, but they could not. So I guess they found a way to tell their stories one-on-one with me in the written word. So I was happy to do that. It took me 15 years to gather them all because it's a it's a process coming mm-hmm. to terms with your story, your history. But then uh, we all stepped up. Every single one of us told our stories, and I thought this is this is powerful. And I'm mm-hmm. going to do my best to present this in the best way possible. And became somewhat, as they tell me the voice for all my sisters who couldn't voice their own stories, as well as my own. And I was so honored to be able to do that. I was like, in a way, their their advocate, you know, child advocate in my history. I know that becoming their voice is a powerful thing. So I was honored beyond words to, to 
gather their stories like that and then write them. And there's some funny parts about it because as sisters, you can imagine one would say it didn't happen that way. And the other one would say, yes, it did. You weren't there. I mean, it was cute. The, the cute little <laughs> yeah. bantering or they'd call me and say, I didn't tell you the truth. Can you come back? Or I remember more now. Can you come back? So I did a lot of traveling <laughs> to my sisters over that course of 15 years. And when I finally had them all, I was like, okay, now this is so complex. I have to figure out a way to make it readable in a way that it raises awareness of this kind of thing. Because even though we're older, this is still happening today. Many things have changed, I'm happy to say, but many things have not. And so we give our stories as a gift, hopefully, to the world in, in the hopes that hearing our stories and knowing there's healing, you know, can can benefit. So that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. Kind of a long one, but <laughs> you did a great job. And I have to say that really to to read your book and to and and, and you can I could understand you did such a great job because there are eleven <laughs> stories that come right. together in one book, and you did it in a way that you know my brain could could keep up right oh, because <laughs> there was a lot going on but um you know and of course you tell a lot of your own story because that's the story that you're that you're most familiar with so let me just ask barbara what what year was it when you girls entered foster care um i was 3 years old so 1954 1954 and we'd like mm -hmm. to think that well like you mm -hmm. you mentioned things have improved greatly in 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 all of those years all of these years but so so it's like 50 years right right is that 50 well more than 50 well yeah. i was three yeah so yeah. Uh, more than 50 years 50, yeah know how many yeah, no. <laughs> no i'm doing the math in my head and it should yeah. be pretty easy because yeah, we're no, at 2024 it's, right it's over yeah. 60 years yeah yeah, yeah. Right. so so but but sadly oh, no. still still children are sexually abused in yeah. foster care at a very high percentage. I think it's all, it's like 80% or something. I know. Um, and and it, it should not be that way. There's that in, injustice. Um, so I, I appreciate that you, you're, you right. have, all of you girls have lent your voices to this to make this known. Um, and you did endure a nightmare. I know mm -hmm. you, you do you detail that when you tell your story of growing up because you were you were three when you came into foster care. Were you about that same age when you went into this foster home? Well, I was three when we came in and we were placed in a Catholic orphanage. Back then there were orphanages, actually, yeah. you know, um, now there's group homes. I don't know how much difference there really is between them. But we were placed in a Catholic Catholic orphanage, which I thought was great because I was right there with my sisters. If I got scared, I'd climb in bed with them. I mean, they pampered me. They watched over me because the nuns and the priests weren't so nice to all the sisters. You know, there was sexual abuse by the priest for a set of twins that was there with us. So, I mean, where are you safe is, is the issue even to today. But um, I had them, as I say, my trauma was when I watched them drive away and I didn't know where they were going. I didn't understand foster care. So I was there for nine months. So I was probably close to four when we were placed in the home of the Pashotas, um for foster care within their home. And you were there until you were how old? Uh, until I married at 19. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
So again, a nightmare, really a nightmare uh-huh. story for you and, and your sister Kay. Yes. Um, how have you worked through that trauma? Mm. You know, if you're lucky enough, I, I really want to want to focus again on my initial as a child, the attachment I had with my sisters, I believe, allows a window of opportunity. That young infant attachment allows a window of opportunity to attach and bond with therapeutic people. Now, if you didn't get that as an infant, I'm not suggesting that you can't do that. I'm say, I will say there's opportunity your entire life to recreate that attachment and bonding and finding the right therapist that can meet you where you are rather than you should do this or you have to do that or here's the steps that can just meet you. You know, I was like at a four-year-old's level emotionally in many ways when I entered therapy in my 30s, mind you. Mm. Um, So I was lucky enough to be able to attach to two incredible therapists. One met me where I was and walked the walk with me. She was highly spiritual. She's the reason I became a minister. And and I've got my degree in family psychology and all of that. But in my mind, there's a soul element to healing. And that can happen for someone who's religious, non-religious. And I call it loving through faith. And the faith for me is, you know, my brother Jesus who walks right next to me. But someone else can, I, I've worked with atheists that I loved through faith, faith in the essence of what they are, rather than what the world shows them they are. Faith in that, that spark in them. Uh, I call that spark of divinity that no matter what happens to them, they can't get rid of. They can forget it though. So I was lucky enough because I, you know, equally forgot that I'm divine. You know, you think you're worthless. You think you're not smart. You think you're not pretty. You think all the things that everyone's ever told you. But when someone looks you in the eye and says, uh-uh, I see something pretty magnificent there. You know, a, a, a creation of God, a child mm. of God is all I'm going to see. You didn't tell me all these other things. And I, I will listen to you and I will have empathy and we will cry together or do whatever but I'm only going to see that part of you that can't be harmed. And that's what my therapist did for me. And Mm. I think, you know, without that, I mean, I might have done well with other therapeutic approaches and there's numerous and wonderful ones. Um, But for me, my belief and my understanding of healing trauma uh, is more than theory it's an actual human connection and experience that you get or should get if you're lucky in infancy from a caretaker that look at you like the grandkids i look in those babies eyes and you see who they are right it's just Mm -hmm. beauty and joy and innocence and we think we lose that and we what i would like to say is we lose the memory of it but we don't lose it so that's that's how I think I worked through it. it took many years, um, five years of therapy with my therapist. And then uh, she introduced me to my mentor who uh, was specialized in healing all kinds of traumas. And I studied with him like 20 years. We traveled uh, the United States, gave workshops and did things like that. So I was very fortunate 
to have these two people enter my life. In addition, I'd like to say, because I think this is important to the layperson out there who asked me, what can I do? So mm. when I was still in foster care, um, my girlfriend's friend saw that in me. Mm. She saw that spark in me and reflected it back. And that was huge, huge for me at that stage and gave me hope and gave me encouragement, also showed me another way to be. And I knew, you know, you don't have to be what you experienced. I knew that from her way of smiling at me and looking at me and recognizing me. And I'm thinking, we can all do that. Just mm. you see a child on the street, it looks really sad. You can reflect the joy you see in that child right back to him, it makes all the difference. Yeah. So. Yeah. I remember, I think it was Dr. Karen Purvis. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with Dr. Karen Purvis and the Connected Child, but um, I, I think it was her who said that, or, um, you know, children are harmed in relationships, right? They're, a person yes. harms them. Yes. But healing comes also through relationships. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And so, you know, you want to let that be hope for individuals who are grown now and trying to deal with childhood trauma and, you know, are resistant to relationships, right? Because that hurts. Or they choose the wrong relationships because they're still looking for that, you know, need as a child to find that and they'll look wherever they can. I mean, one of the, one of the, largest needs a human being has, right, is the need to belong, right? So when you look at these young kids and they're seeking to belong, but nobody's reflecting that divinity back, they'll join anything, the games, you know, crime. This is the root of that because, oh, I belong here and I'm going to identify with them because they're reflecting back to me. So Mm. you will identify with that and become that. So I was lucky. I was very blessed, very blessed yeah, to have yeah. that ability, or you know, that reflected to me. Mm. So you and your sisters, like you said, experienced much of the same kinds of, of trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of your stories are different, right? Different experiences. But right. out of the 11 of you, you know, we see, you know, just from the conversation we're having, you've come through this healing, mm-hmm. very resilient. Mm-hmm. Was that the case with all of your sisters or were some of them not as resilient? I will say they all survived and they all became very productive citizens. Um, Some of them entered brief periods of therapy. Some of them um, uh, survived by, uh, like my sister Kay will openly tell you, she just doesn't have any memories and that's it. And that's how she survived. Um, I will say the secrecy that surrounds child abuse is so ingrained. The shame, you know, Mm. that's not yours to carry. The anger that you aren't even connected to inside. Um, My Some of my sisters didn't even know each other's stories until the book was published this year, May 9th. So, you know, I, th- I often thought, what's going to happen when they finally hear each other's stories? And it was so healing. It was so yeah. healing, you know, and we're getting together in a couple of weeks, the first time since the book came out. And I know it's just going to be hugs and tears and healing. And um, so 
it was it was finally their secret that they carried my eldest sister's 86 wow finally her secret she was able to share it this is a very healing thing yeah Yeah. wow incredible so what makes one person more resilient than another so what contributes to that Mm -hmm. resilience I think it's again, I think having the the blessing of being loved through faith, having someone see in you who you really are, rather than who you think you are based on your history. And it could be a history of abuse, or it could be just, you know, there's emotional elements in all families. Like if, if a child grows up in a family that um, they're never good enough, they can't make the good enough grades, or they can't, you know, their resilience factor will be low. If a child grows up in a family where they say, okay, I see you're trying your hardest, that means more to me than the grade, their resilience factor will be high. So how people view a child is what the child's going to become. And so this is where it's so hard. And, you know, especially foster parents, training foster parents in this kind of thing. Um, If you view them as broken, their resilience is going to be so low. If you view them as, okay, you experienced all this, but your soul is impenetrable you know it's unconquerable it can't be touched by this it's still there you just have to remember that you are that i think resilience is built on that the attachment the relationship that and that can happen anytime throughout the lifespan so it, it, it doesn't help to say oh i didn't get it as a kid i didn't get it as a teen okay you can get it now you can get it through church you can get it through clergy, you can get it through therapy, you can get it through close friends who say, you know, I see you. Okay, we can talk about all this. But is that all real when in, in comparison to what lasts forever? What lasts forever? That's the thing you focus on is your spirit. You know, you're, and, and this could be any religion. As I say, I've worked with every religion. I've worked with atheists. It's the same. Because in my opinion, we're all, you know, children of God. We are all connected. We are all that. And and the essence is love. Now, in traditional therapy, you know, you're pretty limited in the amount of love you can show. And I understand that, that you could show for a client. As a minister, you're bound to show the love you have for that person sitting right in front of you. There was a great psychologist in Scott Peck who wrote a timeless book called The Road Less Traveled. And it's old, but uh, it's so profound. It will live forever, I hope. And he explained in his book that if you can't extend yourself in love to your client, you're not going to help them. Mm-hmm. You know? So we have this this thought, and, and again, I understand it. That you don't want the client to get dependent upon you. You don't want to cross any boundaries. And I understand all that. But the more a client opens up, and this happens in in traditional therapy too, in beautiful and wonderful ways, to trust you, um, the more independence they're actually going to gain. It's kind of paradoxical. So, yeah, I think it's important. So... Yeah. So how do you get the foster parents or child care workers that can do this 
um, can I don't know what that was. I'm sorry. Hi. That is, I apologize. That is my puppy who decided she needed to bark at the moment. So who, who agrees I'm not with, <laughs> saying, you got to just say her part too. Her or yes, his. yes, yes. <laughs> but um, I, I would like to see more work on screening foster parents, caretakers, as based on attachment theory, because you can really weed out um, who's capable of giving that kind of um love for lack yeah. of a better word that kind of con connection or that kind of concern it's all there in the theory and um i'm working on the side a little bit to try to you know put together uh, from my master's studies kind of conclude on that what is a good screening a partial screening anyway that you could find uh, foster parents, you could find those that are probably have a propensity toward this thing and those mm -hmm. who do not. They, we need more of that. And of course, we need more loving foster parents, right? Yes. Which Yes. They, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there are, I mean, I, there are so many. We just weren't lucky enough to find those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm wondering if, because I know today there's foster parent training classes that have to take place. Mm -hmm. And sorry, I was hearing a beeping and I'm not sure where that is coming from. And um, yeah, I'm not sure where that's coming from. Um, so sorry, sorry, audience, <laughs> distraction. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, foster parent training classes because I've, I've, mm -hmm. I've taken them myself. So I don't know as if that they were even in existence back when no. you entered foster care. So there was no. no real screening that was done. There was no, no training like there is today. Um, but even in today's training, there, there, there's, there's a lack in understanding, you know, they only cover just so much in the training, but to be able to understand what you're talking about, about, about resilience and attachment, right. um, you know, that's, that's not necessarily part of that training. So mm -hmm. um, I think we've come a long way, but yeah. we've got a long way to go. Sure, sure. And I just like to say, uh, foster parents who take the time to come to a training would make me near as nervous as, as foster parents who, you know, think they don't need that or, you know, I, I'm hoping it's like a mandatory thing. But even so, um, in that process of that training, you can probably, you tell me if this is accurate, you could probably determine like who's really in there wanting to learn and wanting to help and who's like, I just have to do this. Because, you know, um, sexual abusers, pedophiles look for avenues of careers, coaches, teachers, foster care parents, where they have access to that child right so they wouldn't normally be interested in training or anything they'll look another avenue um so the more training the more screening i think they will naturally kind of weed themselves out a great deal of the time that's a yeah hope. yeah well the required training to become a licensed foster parent uh -huh. is is the background checks and, right. and, and training right. is designed i think to kind of weed out yeah. weed th those folks out um, but still some come through and then there's yeah. even there's even a um, I guess I would call it a crack in the system because um, that now really we like to see children instead of being placed directly in foster care we want to see kinship placements right, right. so that's how yeah. my husband and I entered 
this world because we had three three bio, three biological children and then we got we, we opened our home to a relative an eight-year-old little girl who was a relative and because she didn't go into foster care we the judge said oh your family you know we'll place her with you we didn't have any background checks we right. didn't have any training whatsoever right. so we just proceeded to raise her like we were raising our biological children and you know, had no understanding of trauma or the impacts of trauma, didn't understand any of that, and therefore saw these behaviors that we were trying to correct and discipline right. in consequence, right. none of those things ever worked. Right. So, the, and the trend now really is preventing children from entering foster care by placing them with a relative or a close friend, but, but then you mm. oftentimes, mm -hmm. the, they don't end up with the training. Right. So. And then that the family is also dealing with whatever the rupture was in the extended family that caused the child to need a new placement. Correct. So it's it, it's it's definitely a, a flawed system, right? I think we can well, agree on I that. I think in some cases, I'm really an advocate for placing children with extended family because at least you're going to know where you came from, if they're siblings, right. what have you. And then in another way. Uh, it just depends on the family because sometimes a child is placed in the same cycle that, you know, yes. their parents were in and then the same abuse occurs and, the, you know, a lot of the same over and over. So, um, you know, it's tricky. It's really yeah. hard. It, it, but, you know, I'm so grateful you did that and, I, and how lucky that little girl is. But, <clears throat> excuse me, I know in some cases as a child advocate, I'd go to court and really argue against, in some cases, placing a child with the family from what I knew was going on in the family, family with the siblings that were already there. And, and they were, I was on their case too. I'm like, you know, this, this isn't working. We can't, you know, do this. And yeah. then, as you well know, uh, some uh, families will abuse one child and not another. And people say, how can that be? It doesn't make sense. Well, because one child brings out a transference in that parent that the other child doesn't. So one child's like a favorite and the other one's getting abused terribly. It's a very common thing. So how do you weed all that out? But this child will be safe with that family. This child will not. It's really, really a complex yeah. problem. But, but I think, you know, screening with attachment theory would even aid yeah. that. I really do. Yeah, yeah, and I agree because I I do believe that if we can place a child with a family member or relative, somebody that uh -huh. they know that there's already attachment there, but that family, those caregivers need some training to understand yes. Yes. attachment and, and yes. the impacts of trauma. So yes. so that's that's super important. So Barbara, you are married. You're a mom, uh, a grandmother, a professional. Mm -hmm. um, how did the, your childhood trauma affect your relationships over the years? I, I, I assume you've experienced levels of healing. You mentioned mm -hmm. finally getting therapy in your 30s, um, so different stages of life. Um, but did you have attachment issues? I know you said being attached to your sisters when you were younger, but how, mm -hmm. how, how did your trauma affect your relationships throughout life? I think that um, I'm going to go back to my early, early years and the attachment I had with my sisters made me, I think, very capable uh, to attach and bond to my husband, who was just my soulmate, and my children in the same way that they did with me. I was very fortunate with that. I think I may have been 
uh, over fearful at a point in parenting my kids, like fearful that something could happen to them. But we mm-hmm. always just talked about things. Um, so, and I tell them to this day, I know I had this history of trauma. I know my parenting couldn't have been perfect. So if something comes up for you, let's sit down and talk about it. And, you know, what comes up that they say is so minor somehow um, gave me even further made me believe the value of infancy and having that um, loving um, attachment from the child to the caretaker, which in my case was my older sisters, and the bonding corresponding to that from the older to the younger, I think for all of us sisters, we were good parents. And I don't know how that happened, except to Mm -hmm. say we had each other. And to this day, if you would see us together, uh, some are in heaven now. So, you know, Mm -hmm. but there is so much joy, so much laughter, so much freedom that couldn't, couldn't come from any other way any other source so mm-hmm. i tell them and they don't mind like yeah, okay if something comes up i'll talk to you about it so we have that openness which i think is super important um i questioned myself a lot as a parent but i think most parents do so my trauma was more focused on me like um um, I, I created like this false scenario in my mind as a child, many children do, um, to kind of, I always say I locked up my memories in a dark dungeon with strong iron doors so they couldn't get out. And it worked for quite a while until, um, about my thirties, hmm. they started slipping out and I was noticing I had some OCD tendencies. You know, so I knew it was time to deal with this. I already had my children, um, my husband, and they were supportive of my journey. Um, Even the little ones, I mean, they didn't know what was going on, my two younger ones, but they knew I said, mommy's working through some sadness. And they, you know, it was like not a secret. It was like, this is just part of our unit. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. So I, it was more on me. Like, you know, I had to deal with my own shame or deal with my, basically my own anger, um, mm. which we were never allowed to, to express. Um, yeah. and, it, and so you learn to um, push that down, which I will say will cause a lot of illnesses. So I had migraines and, you know, if somebody had a cold, I caught it, you know, my resistance was down. And I think that was all because of repressed anger, not Mm. understanding that anger could be healthy. I mean, I would get angry, but I had a lot of anger about my childhood within me, especially over losing my sisters and the fact that my foster parents knew where they were, but wouldn't tell me, kept us isolated really made me angry. So coming yeah. to terms and learning uh, unhealthy shame and healthy shame, that difference. Shame is a good thing you have. That's your guide. It's your interior guide. It tells you when you're doing something right or something wrong. You do something wrong, you don't feel good about it. We're born with that. It's innate. It's a good thing to have, right? It, it, we need it in society. 
unhealthy shame is put on you externally, right? It mm-hmm. makes you feel ashamed of yourself. That's mm-hmm. a totally different ballpark. And yeah. understanding that difference and putting that unhealthy shame where it belongs uh, is, I think, all part of that as well. So I had a lot to learn um, yeah. and and share and mm-hmm. uh, go through. Um, and I keep, like I say, I keep telling my kids, you know, this is what I came into this with. If you yeah. see aspects of it, just tell me. Yeah. And uh, that's how we go forward. That's how that's how we row. Yeah. Well, that awareness, right? When you know mm-hmm. and you can and you can <clears throat> and speak speak to it. A couple yeah. of things because my 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 guest last week on the show uh-huh. uh was Angela Williams and I she yeah. yeah, so she's incredible. So a couple of things that I just like gold nuggets because I I know in, in um you mentioned, you know, at one point raising your children, you had fears. Mm-hmm. Right. And I and I and we talked about that with Angela. And I, mm-hmm. I know other I, I know other adult women who suffered child sexual abuse who are mm-hmm. young moms, mm-hmm. who their their parenting tends to lean very fear driven, always mm-hmm. trying to control outcomes, mm-hmm. so that because they're trying to prevent bad things from happening, happening to their to kids. kids. Sure. Yeah. And w- which all of us as parents, we don't want anything bad to happen to our kids. But this is right. more of a like, try to control everything. Right. And it becomes very unreasonable and very yeah. C- yeah. controlling and not healthy. Like you can, you can see that. Um, so there's that, that that maybe you can speak to. And then you mentioned, when you reach your 30s, mm-hmm. that's when you needed to have, that's mm-hmm. when you went to, for ca- for therapy. And Angela mentioned, when she reached her 30s, yeah. she she had a second suicide attempt, oh. and that landed her into yeah. um, therapy. So yeah. 30 seems to be sort of like a magic number Very here. common. It is common. Yeah. Yes. yes. You know, I can say um, I was fearful. I don't think I was over-controlling. I'll ask my kids again. I've asked them many times. But I, I, I like, I'm a minister, so I have to speak to my experience as, as, as a child in the, in the orphanage. Some of the nuns were so kind to me and we went to chapel and they sang and I swayed to the music and I could smell the incense. And I think at the age of four, I had a peak experience, you know, mm. right then and there that kind of knew everything was one. Um, mm. I had experiences of my brother Jesus coming to me, telling me, don't worry about anything. I've got you. You know, I'm always here. And I think, I wonder, let's put it that way, because we're never 100% sure if that connection was that was given to me helped me um, see the world a little differently, to see my children as uniquely who they were, rather than um, something I owned. You know, mm-hmm. it's like the Khalil Gibran thing, your children are not your children. They come through you, but not from you, that kind of thing. I don't know how. I kind of always had a sense that, um, <clears throat> pardon me, that they were their own people. Um, we struggled in the teen years, like, you know, no, you can't go out. No, I'm not going to extend your curfew mm-hmm. till midnight. No, you're so mean. And I mean, we had all those normal things. Um, but I think my connection, I, I, I felt this guide most of my mm. life, all my life, really, um, which I call my brother Jesus. I also had 
the Virgin Mary being raised Catholic. She was my mother. But I didn't like the foster parents I had. I had Joseph could be my foster parent. He was my brother's foster parent. He'd be my <laughs> foster parent too. So I had these symbols in my life. I, I obviously uh, am not a practicing Catholic because I'm a woman minister, so that wouldn't work. <laughs> but there were some elements of Catholicism that um, made me view things maybe differently than I might have otherwise. Mm. So your faith definitely played a role in your healing. From little on up, yes. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So l tell me about your advocacy work on behalf mm -hmm. of, of child abuse survivors. Okay. So um, my mother wound up having a total of 13 children. Uh, mm. Us 11 girls, there's two more out, out there. We don't know where they are. And one is a boy. So who knows? Maybe <laughs> this book will flush them out. Maybe we'll find them. They were taken away from my mother as infants and fostered out. So I'm telling you that there's 13 because the first case I was assigned to was a mother with 13 children. And I thought, <laughs> okay, you know, this, this isn't a coincidence. Okay, I get this. So I felt um, I really understood them. I understood what it felt like to be separated. I understood what it felt like to miss your family. I, I made sure we had all kinds of sibling visits with all these kids. You know, um, as a child advocate, um, you're kind of outside of the system. You know, you're the right arm of the judge. So you have a lot of flexibility that social workers don't have. You have more time because you're on one case. Um, and I think it's a very, very powerful way to help children. And you can actually ask the kids, what do you want to have happen? You know, mm -hmm. you have a voice in this too, uh, rather than just being, you don't know where you're going from day to day and who's going to take care of you. But you can then figure out why are they so fearful to go to grandpa's? You know, why is that? So you can make a surprise visit at grandpa's and you kind of learn what's going on and then you know i was honored to um advocate for those children for that case was many years mm -hmm. <laughs> i was on that case um once everyone was kind of placed and siblings placed together which was beautiful and and insurance that they could see each other and uh, all the all the protections and programs because we had a couple of a set of twins that were born with, um, you know, alcoholics and exposure, they were on cocaine. Yeah. They were on everything. They didn't sit up till they were over a year old. Mm. So you know, we dealt with all that. We got them all the resources they need, which is a wonderful thing about a child advocate. And uh, by the second grade, they were surpassing their peers. So it's so hopeful to know that things can work. Um, <clears throat> I am not currently on a case because I took off time to finish this book and and do a couple other things. But I'm considering going back in the town where I live now. We have a casa. I can't think of a more powerful way uh, to help children. Mm. And very rewarding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love that. Um, so tell us about your, you're a ministerial counselor. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about that work. Mm, okay. So um, I went back to school later in life, and I think that my childhood really impacted my ability to learn as a child. So I always felt as if 
you know, there was something wrong with my brain. And there may have been, it may have taken some developmental stages for me to catch up. But I didn't have any intention of going to college or pursuing higher education because I never thought it was an option for me. So in my 30s, when I when I started college or uh, therapy, as you say, my therapist encouraged me to take a class and something that I would enjoy, which I took a crisis intervention class, obviously, right? So <laughs> I started enjoying. And so I went to the university and got my undergrad in uh, human development, social sciences. And I graduated with a 4.0. I graduated magna cum laude. I was one credit shy of SUMA because I hadn't transferred my credits over from St. Louis, we moved down on the East Coast. I hadn't transferred everything properly, so I lost that. But do you know, even with that accomplishment, I still didn't feel myself as being <laughs> anything smart, intelligent, or anything. So it shows you how hard it is to overcome those things. Yeah. So then I went to graduate school and got my master's in family psychology, um, loved it, did my practicum, got everything. Everybody's saying, this is great. You need to go on for your doctorate, et cetera, et cetera. I still didn't view myself as capable after all of that. And then um, I was going to get a, my doctorate, <clears throat> and we had an illness in the family that I had to choose, and I knew how much time a doctorate would take. So I took some time off, and then I realized, really, what I want to do is um, be able to express my faith and work with people that, you know, and so it occurred to me, that uh, if I found a, a program that would allow me to do ministerial counseling, and if I want to work with families and child abuse, this would be the way to do it. Much like a CASA is out of the system, ministerial counselors out of the system as well, which meant I could go to lunch and dinner at their homes. You know, I could, um, I married the couples, I baptized the babies, I buried grandma, and I could see the whole family system. And we could sit down and talk and pray about problems and also, you know, interact with with the other professionals that would be involved in that particular family structure. It was so successful. I, I had to turn people away. I could not keep up with with the families that were recommended to me. So I felt really blessed for those that I could touch and help, and it fit me. So that's what I did, and I did that like 25 years maybe, um, and I loved it. I just like because I ministered to the entire family unit. Yeah, I loved I love it. that. Love mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. now you're an author, and you are uh -huh. promoting your book. So tell us a little bit more about your book, Broken mm. Water. Mm. Um, you you told us why you what what led you to write it. Right, um, right. Anything else you want to share? And of course, tell us where we can get a copy. Yes, sure. So Broken Water um, is an effort, as I said earlier, to break the silence surrounding child abuse. I'm stunned by the warm reception it's getting by the emails I'm getting that are saying, thank you, you helped me resolve something in my childhood. Or uh, I, I'm, I wondered when I put it out there if I would get much negativity. And I prayed and I just said, well, whatever I get, I get, and let it wind up in the hands of those that can help. And it 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 is doing remarkably well. I'm shocked. I mean, it, it's, it's ending up in the UK and um, Australia and Vietnam and... 
parts of China. I mean, it's it's going where the good Lord wants it to go is the way mm. I look at it. And so I'm thrilled to offer it. I'm getting wonderful emails from people and it's helped. I have like, oh my gosh, I don't know how many nieces and nephews with all of us having children who are getting a hold of me and calling me Aunt Barbie. Thank you so much. I understand my mom now because you don't know what you're going to get when you put something like this out there. Um, My sisters, they're healing. It's just been a beautiful thing. So it was divinely led and I think it's going to continue to be divinely distributed and what it is it is so you can get broken water on amazon it's broken water by barbara lane are really anywhere you get your book and if you like to support your local bookstore you can go in and ask them they can get a copy for you um and uh if if this is something you're called to read then i really honor and bless you for doing that yeah, absolutely. We I highly recommend it. And we'll put links to everything in our show notes for this podcast. Thank Do you, you have a, a website or how sure. can our listeners connect with you? Sure. BarbaraLane.info. It's full of info. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if you just do BarbaraLane.com, there's a different Barbara Lane that comes up because I did that. Correct. <laughs> and yeah. then I ha- and then I realized, oh, I have to do dot .info, not right. .com. So not we'll .com. make sure. Although yeah. she's a beautiful author. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you want to visit her as well. But I am BarbaraLane.info. Dot info. So we'll put a link to, to your uh-huh. website in the show uh-huh. notes as well. Um, so, so important. So as I mentioned, Barbara, many of our listeners are foster and adoptive parents like yeah. myself. Yeah. Um, what advice would you give us um, as we are raising children with trauma histories? I think one of the things is probably incredibly difficult for all, all foster parents to find is time to self-nurture. Uh, but I think it is absolutely essential that you get respite time to nurture yourself, whatever that means for you, you know, prayer, meditation, a walk, a massage, a a lunch with a girlfriend, so that you don't lose yourself in in this process. Because if you lose yourself, which would be so easy to do, because these are very loving, giving individuals like you, you'll, you'll have burnout, and you you won't be able to continue to the level that you you want to achieve. So self-nurturing, self-care, um, you know, is, is vitally important. Secondly is is realizing that these children may not behave the way you want them to. You know, discipline doesn't necessarily work. I probably never with a child of trauma because they've tuned that out because they've had to, it's more of the same kind of thing. So discussing, it's it's like saying to a child who's misbehaving, uh, and this takes such patience and tremendous care and love, I'm just going to sit here with you until you calm down. I'm here for you, but that's all. And I mean, it may take hours, hmm. but if you just sit and say, I'm not leaving until you, you figure this out, I'm here. They will learn to trust you because you didn't leave them. And they might say something like, oh, you've got too much to do to sit here all this time with me. And if you can, to say, I love you enough, I care about you enough, I'm just going to sit here. And they will eventually come around. This is a huge turning point for kids in trauma. It takes time, patience. And what do you do when you've got all these other kids, too? Yeah. 
If you yes, can. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's if very you, much a, a, a understanding the behaviors come from yes. the trauma, right? Yes. And, and, and are symptomatic of that. Right. And they're not yeah. the child. They're not the exactly. child. Look in the eyes of that child and what do you yeah. see? Look beyond the anger, look beyond the sadness, look beyond the behaviors and seek that that innocence that child was born with, that that gift that God gave them. And all the yeah. other stuff is just what happens when they weren't reminded who they are. They weren't yeah. reminded this the the incredible innocence and joy and creativity that they are. They yeah. they forget. We all forget. And and having someone really look at them and say, oh, what I see in you is incredible. I know you're doing this. We'll talk about this behavior. But what I see in you mm. is divine. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. as we wrap up, Barbara, any mm -hmm. last thoughts, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Mm. I wish I could look into each foster parent's eyes and reflect back to them the pride I have, the joy I have, the honor I have for them. And mm -hmm. I hope just saying this will help them realize that you're doing magnificent and wonderful things. God bless you. Keep it up. I answer every single email I get on barbaralane.info. You can leave me in my contact form. It may take me a while, but if you want to say a prayer, if you want to just whatever, I respond to each and every one myself. So feel free to do that. If you think I can be helpful to you in any way, I'm happy to. Oh, well, thank you so much, Barbara. Thank You're you for welcome. sharing your story, for all the work that you do for your for your ministry, supporting mm -hmm. victims of, of childhood abuse. Yeah. So thank yeah. you so much for being on the show today. And thank you for having me. You take care of yourself. Thank you. Wow, what another incredible interview. And um, to learn more and to find the resources um, on Barbara's website, it's barbaralane.info. You don't have to do a .com or anything. It's just barbaralane.info. Um, and you can check out her memoir, Broken Water. Incredible, incredible story. Um, and I'm, I just feel like there's some divine intervention going on here because last week's episode with Angela Williams, um, very similar focus and topic on childhood sexual abuse, just unplanned that these two guests would be back to back because I actually had Barbara had to reschedule at one point and it's just the way it's landing. So I really believe the Lord is up to something with just how these episodes are being released. So I'm trusting that somebody out there, including myself, needed these two episodes. So thank you for listening to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I hope you were inspired by Barbara's story. I know I have been. Uh, in addition to inspiring you, of course, we love to equip you for your parenting journey. If you would like to learn more about FASD, how to apply the neurobehavioral model, uh, to accommodate your kids for success, you will want to take advantage of our training. To register for our online trainings, um, our workshops, to check out all that's available, check out our resources, visit our website at justicefororphansny.org. We've included a link to the website in the show notes um, for the episode, so you can easily go there, click and check it out. 
Uh, if you are interested in booking an online or in-person workshop for your group, agency, um, or maybe you want a one-on-one -on -one consultation um, with me. So you can contact me for that um, at our website, or you can email me directly. Uh, at my, at my email is sandraflack at justicefororphansny.org. Remember the hope for the FASD Journey virtual support community. Um, we are here to walk with you through your parenting journey. Again, details on our website. And if you enjoyed the show, please let us know by leaving a review if you listen on Apple or by subscribing or following this podcast so you don't miss a single episode and let your fellow adoptive and fostering friends know so that they can be encouraged and equipped through this podcast as well. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. You can also follow me, Sandra Flack, on both platforms as well. And again, I am grateful that you spent your valuable time with me today. I am thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.